Thank you very much, Jeannie, for inviting me and for that lovely introduction. And I want to thank Comparative Media and the Literature section as well for having me here today. It's a great honor. So as Jeannie said, my talk today is entitled By Design, or What Remote Controls Can Teach Us About the Nature of Control. Eugene Pauly, the inventor of the first wireless remote control, that's him up there, and his first wireless television remote, once said, quote, the flush toilet may have been the most civilized invention ever devised, but the remote control is the next most important, end quote. The flush toilet fundamentally altered domestic space. It not only brought elimination indoors, but created a network of pipes within the house, pipes that connect our most private functions to vast public networks of waste disposal. Flush toilets change the way we poop, and also the way we live with and understand our families and houses. The flush toilet is so ingrained in our notions of what it means to be modern that we can hardly imagine our lives without it. But the remote control? In fact, this seemingly innocuous media accessory has been refashioning the ways we experience our houses and family for almost a century. Remote controls have cascading effects on how we arrange our domestic spaces, whom we choose to share them with, and what we do there. I live in a small two-bedroom apartment in Washington, D.C. All of the chairs in my living room are located on one side of the room, across from the HDTV. This arrangement suits the size and design of our television monitor. But then, big screen TVs were made possible by the remote control. Without a remote, no one would want to sit across the room from their television set. I mean, maybe that room, but a normal-sized room. Our HDTV-oriented living room makes group gatherings difficult. But that hardly matters, since media consumption has become its primary function. The room's four remotes have completely commandeered its coffee table. If they're not on that table, they tend to go missing. And without its remotes, the room becomes entirely dysfunctional. So, with that truth in mind, I'd like to rectify the long-overlooked influence of consumer electronics on our media experiences through a technical and discursive analysis of the remote control. To be sure, sociologists and communication scholars have undertaken many empirical studies of electronics use. But my work blends cultural and design history to consider the media apparatus as a subject and an object of ideology. Since their commercial debut 85 years ago, remote controls have encouraged users to confuse control with power and purposiveness with agency. Whereas power constructs the arena of its action, control operates within predefined parameters. In this case, parameters that remote controls express through their design. Today, I'm going to focus on the development of remote controls for radio receivers in order to intervene in a decades-long debate in media studies about whether mass media consumers are fundamentally active or passive always negotiating individual responses to the mass media or acquiescing to its norms and biases. Historicizing remote control, 
reveals that the activity or passivity of media consumers emerges and must always be read within the context of larger material environments. And I say environments as opposed to ecologies because I don't wish to invoke media ecologies tendency towards technological determinism. Remote controls were developed and marketed under the auspices of various supervening social issues. Furthermore, remotes and their users encounter each other in mutual material exchanges where each influences the other, as is also the case with the chairs, pets, bookcases, and lighting fixtures that occupy these environments. Putting the remote control in its place, historically, materially, and culturally, demonstrates how even the most unobtrusive media devices shape our understanding of major social issues, such as the class status of mass media or the division between public and private spheres. Indeed, such issues shaped the remote control's development, specifically manufacturers' hopes that it would mitigate various consumer resistances to broadcast media. So with that, I tell you, it was absolutely uncanny. So begins a 1929 print advertisement for Colster's K45 radio receiver, the first radio receiver to come with a remote control. In this ad, an anonymous narrator tells the story of his first encounter with the remote. Shall we have some music? He suggests to his fictional host. Then his host, quote, instead of walking way round into the library, turned to an interesting device on the table beside him and pressed a button, end quote. The incredulous narrator is delighted by the miraculous little box his friend employs, but the scenario he describes, the request for radio at a social gathering, hints at cultural changes far more significant than just a novel gadget. Between 1924 and 1929, radio had affected a cultural revolution in the United States, the first infiltration of broadcast media into the home. During this turning point in communications history, an informal wireless culture was giving way to radio's homogenized networks, and manufacturers were adding remote controls to their radio receivers in order to capitalize on and encourage that change. So, a little background. Before the Radio Act of 1927, all sorts of amateurs and businesses experimented with radio broadcasting, known then as wireless telegraphy. Wireless users could talk to or listen in on sundry transmissions from hobbyists, political organizations, local corporations, and even a few early broadcast chains. The medium was extremely popular. By 1917, almost 9,000 Americans had radio broadcasting licenses and exchanged information across an improvised telecommunications network. Most built their radio transmitters and receivers themselves from either kits or instructions in new magazines like Radio Age and Popular Mechanics. Thus did radio enter American culture as both a highly technical and highly gendered hobby. The great majority of early wireless aficionados were male, 
as the technical knowledge and labor associated with building and operating one's own radio were distinctly marked as masculine. Also, most home-built radios were unsettling jumbles of wires and tubes powered by portable batteries whose acid could ruin furniture and carpets. For this reason, many homemakers considered the wireless to be incompatible with family life and banished it to male-gendered spaces like the workroom, the attic, and the garage. And this banishment also uh, produced a certain amount of anxiety as homemakers, the, these women uh, running the houses, were questioning what that banishment meant for a new cultural emphasis on family quality time that was emerging with the spread of electricity to domestic spaces in the beginning of the 20th century. I just want to say I'm realizing some of these images are going to be more pixelated than others. This project was greatly assisted by the help of private collectors and museum owners, some of whom were taking better quality images for me than others, so I appreciate your patience. Radio patent holders like the Radio Corporation of America wanted to remedy such skepticism in order to derive greater profit from their intellectual property. In order to sell more radios, they needed to make broadcast radio more family-friendly than wireless culture. And in the U.S. context, that, made, that meant making it more commercial. They did this by sponsoring educational and cultural programming with high production values and by making easy-to-use radio receivers that all members of the family might embrace. These strategies were also intended to combat class prejudice against radio as a mass medium. The belief, that is, that mass meant lower class. Radio manufacturers, now also radio broadcasters, wanted to attract more affluent consumers who could buy more expensive radios and help them command even higher sponsorship fees. To that end, during the mid-1920s, RCA and its competitors borrowed a technique from the gramophone industry and began marketing high-end radio cabinets compatible with traditional American decor. This design strategy accompanied and reflected a change in the social mapping of the home, particularly the living room. During the first decades of the 20th century, the role of the living room shifted from a formal showplace to a multi-purpose entertaining and recreation area. Radios were called upon to realize both aspirations, to evoke heritage tastes and modernity at once. Radio manufacturers thus courted homemakers with receivers that might blend into domestic design schemes so well that others would notice how well integrated they were. Christine Frederick chronicled this design change for the popular magazine Wireless Age. Writing in 1925, she observes, quote, Until this year, radio was the toy and the joy of men rather than women. It has only been since women have taken a practical homemaking interest in radio that manufacturers have started to make higher class, more beautiful, and more artistically designed sets, end quote. Frederick decreed that women's first concern regarding radio ought to be aesthetic, 
and that artistically and the artistically designed sets that she celebrated all echo traditional styles of US interior design. And here I just want to point out this, this tastemaker, Frederick, was no fan of Art Deco. And in fact, there actually weren't any Art Deco cabinet radios with remote control. There weren't any. Yeah, I think I can say that. <laughs> Advertisers largely echoed Frederick's philosophy. A 1933 Atwater Kent ad assured readers of the Ladies' Home Journal that, quote, radio needn't disturb any room. And I realize this room looks highly disturbed. It's a very <laughs> odd illustration to run with this under this particular slogan. But as you'll notice, within the mess, the radio to the uh, right of the armchair doesn't seem to be making it any worse. <laughs> so artistically designed yet undisturbing. By selling radios as furniture rather than technology, and as continuous of design principles rather than interruptions thereof, manufacturers made radio appear compatible with traditional family values, so that the family purchasing them might appear, might appear compatible, or should we say compliant, as well. Between 1929 and 1933, manufacturers also began attaching remote control to some of their top-of-the-line radio cabinets. These remote-controlled radio receivers did not come cheap. Colster asked about $500 for the K45 with remote in a year when the median price for a radio receiver was $139. Adjusting for inflation, this means that Colster was charging nearly seven grand for a reasonably nice but hardly extraordinary radio that happened to feature some extra tuning dials on a box at the far end of a 20-foot cable. Small wonder, then, that Colster's early ads for the K45 pictured men in tuxedos and women in evening dresses. So I want to direct your attention now to the, the swells at the top of our image. Because only upper-class individuals could afford such devices. Colster's ads encouraged such consumers to imagine remote control as evidence of their wealth and power a luxury that made radio luxurious by association. The Colster ad promoted such class fantasies to evoke radio's new urbane appeal as a broadcast medium and suggest that remote control would be an indispensable component of genteel media consumption. The K45 receiver resembled, and you can see it right at the back under the word post, the K45 receiver resembled a beautiful piece of furniture, a, quote, richly grained walnut cabinet, unique and exquisite in appearance, end quote. Though its remote control over to the left was no aesthetic mar marvel, hardly more than a cigar box with buttons. Now, if we look at our swells again, you'll notice how the device itself is both central to and nearly indiscernible within the ad's illustration. And I t admit it took me quite a while with this ad to actually find it. But the, the higher up of the two fellows on the right, who's got his arm outstretched, he's the one, the host with the remote control. 
Discreetly located on the host side table, the remote occupies a spot near the center of the image. And aside from uh, that lady's thighs, it's actually the best, the most illuminated object in the center of the image. Yet none of these characters is looking at it. The remote blends right into this refined and luxurious drawing room. So although the copy in Colster's ad introduces remote control as a gimmick, the illustration suggests that it can eclipse wireless's uncultivated, overly technical image and help radio become the discreet, civilized entertainment medium of the future. Altogether, then, remote controls and fancy consoles changed radio's class resonances, but manufacturers also hoped that such design schemes would make radio seem more consonant with traditional family ideologies. While remote controls were initially advertised as upscale accessories, during the mid to late 1930s, manufacturers also promoted them to middle-class consumers, as tools for policing those product endorsements aimed at women and children who were regarded as particularly vulnerable to suggestion. And I just want to point out that other controversies of the era suggest that policing political speech might have been another important application for remote control, but none of the ads want to come out and say this, right? Commercials stand in for other forms of undesirable speech. So here we see design emerging as compensation for the friction between radio as a commercial broadcast medium and the prevailing 19th century doctrine of separate spheres. As Alexander de Tocqueville famously wrote in 1840, quote, in no country has such constant care been taken as in America to trace two clearly distinct lines of action for the two sexes and to keep them and to make them keep pace with one another, but in two pathways that are always different, end quote. Because the family home was to be a retreat for men from the stress of business and politics, women were morally and religiously obligated to maintain a safe, nurturing environment for their husbands and children. By the same token, though, men were responsible for protecting their families from the brute force of the public sphere, including political speech and the crass appeals of the market. Yet how to maintain the privacy of the home if outside voices could intrude at any moment? Radio manufacturers had to grapple with this social quandary, i.e., how to make radio seem family-friendly while maintaining their commercial broadcasting paradigm. Secondary tuning stations promised to resolve this problem by allowing users to monitor incoming broadcasts with less physical effort. Calling these stations remote control was also critical to that paradigm. In 1929, the phrase remote control had no fixed meaning. Other industries were using it to refer to in-wall light switches and to automatic hood releases. But the term originated in England in the 18th century during the 1794 trial of Thomas Hardy for high treason. Not that Thomas Hardy, by the way, for those of you in literature, unrelated. 
Hardy was one of 12 political organizers persecuted for advocating electoral reform, specifically for demanding universal suffrage, suffrage and direct democracy without party distinctions. During Hardy's trial, Solicitor General Sir John Milford coined the phrase remote control to counterpoise Hardy's dream of, quote, a revolutionary government based on the rights of man and equal citizenship and so on, in which the people are to be considered as constantly sovereign, as constantly exerting the sovereign authority, and as having perpetual control over the whole government of the country, not an indirect or remote control, end quote. When applied to secondary tuning stations for home radios, the remote of remote control stresses mastery at a distance, mastery over the distance between the user and the apparatus. Distance and telecommunications were fraught concepts for many Americans during the early 20th century. As Jeffrey Sconce has shown, telegraphy and radio communications made the air seem alive with information in ways it never had before. Various early 20th century story writers, poets, and journalists captured how electronic media were transforming space into ether, a medium for communiques from great distances, including the great beyond. And my favorite of these is uh, Rudyard Kipling's story, Wireless, which was published in Scribner's in August 1902 and tells the story of um, a pharmacist's assistant who one night is possessed by the spirit of John Keats while his boss is experimenting with a homemade wireless transmitter in the back room. It's fabulous. Home radio receivers brought remote and uncanny voices indoors, making them part of the sacred family scene. Such incursions disrupted the remoteness of the home, the family's psychic distance from the wider world, and disrupted the ideological model of separate spheres. The material world was no longer providing firm boundaries for the psychic world, which produced anxiety and excitement for wireless and radio listeners. Thus, radio receivers forced an ideological crisis for many early 20th century families. Remote control promised to resolve that crisis, to restore users' control over the family's psychic remoteness. And best of all, users wouldn't even have to get up from their easy chairs to invoke it. While remotes today all emphasize mobility and portability, right? They're, they're oddly uh, designed to fit in your pocket or, or with you on the go, even though you ain't going nowhere. Radio receiver remotes represented remoteness as sedentary rather than mobile. They were not designed to move with the user, but rather to compensate for the, com for the complex collection of tuning dials still dominating most cabinet radio consoles. As late as 1930, one Canadian radio journal referred to the control panel as, quote, a multiplicity of knobs bewildering to the uninitiated, end quote. While automatic tuning slowly developed over the 1920s and 30s, manual tuning still required training and technique, as it had in the days of wireless telegraphy. 
Manual tuning intimidated many early radio listeners. Its complexity seemed to some ideologically incompatible with radio's aspirations as an entertainment platform. Enter the remote control, which built physical passivity into its model of interactivity. By offering the user a certain number of buttons for preset stations, radio remotes permitted their users to trade variety for simplicity and stillness. Such the passivity became a characteristic component of the user's experience of control. Of course, as anyone who's ever used a remote knows, such control is more illusory than practical. Milford suggested as much as in his original use of the term to describe representative democracy, and Rayford Gwines comes to similar conclusions regarding contemporary media environments, wherein he writes, quote, control is fully realized into a system of governance where domestic technologies help exert further regulation over the contents of the home. Choice instrumentalizing freedom of choice as a governing strategy, end quote. Between them, Gwines and Milford suggest we might do well to understand remote control as a perception of superintendence, as the perceived capacity for intervention, rather than actual intervention. This principle is particularly evident in the design and marketing of 1930s remotes, in ads that attempt to marry activity and passivity, control and luxury, traditionalism and technophilia. So I'm going to turn now to contrasting advertisements for remote controls with the devices themselves in order to differentiate between the rhetoric of remote control and its design. For instance, because remote controls could complicate the aesthetic integration of radio into domestic space, Advertisers took up new strategies to emphasize their social affordances, such as embracing the new ideology of conspicuous consumption. One 1932 ad for Stromberg Carlson's radio phonograph with remote belies the plainness of the latter device by emphasizing its power to impress guests. The ad features a modern, stylish tea party made possible by remote control. But I just want you to notice how the tea party is presented to you, right? That the hostess is facing away from the reader as she reaches for her remote control so that the face we see is that of her guest, right? Looking, this time, three years later, at the remote control. And I also just wanted to pay attention to the class markings of this party, to the fur stole on the guest's shoulder, as well as the silver tea service in the foreground. Oh, and then this line, there's nothing finer than a Stromberg Carlson. The ad's illustration places the remote control near the center of the tea table, a beacon for the eye and a brazen invitation to conspicuous consumption. Coined by Thurston Veblen in 1899, conspicuous consumption described a growing social trend among upper middle class, among the upper middle class, to display wealth and power through material acquisitions. During the early 20th century, other sociologists and the popular press expanded Veblen's concept to refer to the middle class practice of spending discretionary income on frivolous luxury goods rather than practical needs. 
The Stromberg-Carlson ad hints that purchasing a remote-controlled radio phonograph might be an effective way to attract the attention and admiration of house guests. Just leave the remote out on your tea table, the ad suggests, and watch your friends coo with jealousy. Yet while Stromberg-Carlson's ad stresses conspicuous consumption, the actual design of both their and other radio remotes complicates Veblen's theory. Early remote controls were in fact rather plain, especially compared to the radio receivers they accompanied. A 1934 article from Popular Science profiling the latest batch of radio receiver remotes suggests that most were utilitarian in design. Boxes controlled by push buttons and connected to their consoles by thick ribbon cables. A few had visual tuning meters, but for the most part, their design exhibited none of the flair or visual appeal of contemporaneous receivers. If anything, their emphasis on mechanical efficiency recalls the minimalist design of early wireless transmitters and receivers, whose buttons and dials resisted integration into into a domestic aesthetic. To return to the Colster K45, this one over here, its remote was an unremarkable metal box with 10 to 20 buttons and a volume knob. While it featured some decorative scroll work on the 29 and 30 models, so before that one, its hefty brown cord also suggested that there was as much to hide about remote controls as to display. Stromberg Carlson's Telector remote was even less attractive, larger, thicker, with a white ribbon cable and none of Colster's subtle ornamentation. Equally unportable, it too was designed to be tucked onto an end table within easy reach but far from view. I'll return to the issue of remote control cords momentarily, but for now what I want to emphasize is that contrary to advertising rhetoric and supervening social trends, early remote controls were actually designed to be inconspicuous. It was their affordances that manufacturers and users hoped to make visible, not the devices themselves. To that end, many 1930s radio manufacturers disguised their remote controls to look like other objects. In 1931, the General Motors Radio Company hid its 281 remote, its 281 remote control heterodyne converter inside a standing ashtray. Voila! The 281 is a funny exemplar for 1930s remote control design because technically it isn't a remote control at all. It's primarily a converter, meaning it's an elaborate, remote, an elaborate radio antenna that adapts incoming signals to intermediate frequencies and relays them via antenna cable to a receiver, resulting in a clearer sound and greater tuning sensitivity. The good folks at General Motors just added tuning and volume control dials to their converter to give it all the functions of a remote control. They then encased it in an ash stand to encourage its integration into offices and domestic spaces. 
as the 281 disguises its remote control functions, it also defies received notions of conspicuous consumption. Its design conceals while also begging to be revealed as more than it appears. To the degree that the 281 makes remote control unexpected then, it also makes it that much more impressive. Other remote controls of the era came camouflaged as furniture. Philco's first remote control, the Lazy X, doubled as an ornate Queen Anne side table. So this is the remote control over here. It's a little bigger than what you guys probably have going on at home. Like the 281, though, the Lazy X was not technically a remote control. Philco marketed it as a remote control, but the so-called remote was, in fact, the unit's radio receiver. The Lazy X's console cabinet contained only loudspeakers, which had to be connected to the receiver come remote through, you guessed it, 20-foot ribbon cables. Thus did Philco avoid the problem of the unsightly tabletop remote. They simply turned a table into a remote. Nevertheless, ads for the Lazy X employed the rhetoric of remote control in order to emphasize the luxury of sedentary tuning. Sink back into your most comfortable chair, one ad advised as, quote, a radio of glorious tone begins playing across the room, end quote. Philco introduced the Lazy X only a few years after Colster and Stromberg Carlson brought out their remotes. Yet already in this campaign, yet already this campaign targets a middle rather than an upper class consumer, offering, quote, the height of radio luxury at less than half the previous cost of remote control, end quote, the Lazy X retailed for as little as $100, so a fifth of the K45, in 1933, which made it a reasonable price for any cabinet radio. Tellingly, the ad concludes by guaranteeing that with the Lazy X, quote, a whole new world of radio entertainment is opened up for you and your family. Here, Philco explicitly hails radio as a family amusement rather than an adult luxury and figures the public sphere as a diversion for the private. This final line handily evokes the excitement of early wireless culture and associates it with the safety of broadcast, specifically the latter's promise of family-friendly domestic entertainment. It also implicitly hails a male reader, the man of the house bringing the outside world to his family. Yet no such patriarch or grateful audience appears in the illustration. Instead, it depicts a young woman reclining alone next to her Lazy X remote. This model rests one hand regally on the arm of her wingback chair, while the other reaches beneath a hinged panel in the top of the Lazy X side table. Her grace and femininity mark the Lazy X as both regal and approachable, a perfect addition to the home. So this Philco Lazy X advertisement was the first I was able to find to sell its product predominantly through images of feminine repose. The technique thereafter became an industrial trend, 
although introducing gender roles into remote control advertising was a rhetorically complicated move for electronics manufacturers of the 1930s due to the era's contradictory gender roles. Ads needed to appeal to male readers as the family's financial head, yet shopping was widely regarded as a feminine responsibility. Men were also in charge of protecting their families from the corrupting influence of the outside world, that male public sphere that radio both promised and threatened to bring inside the home. Meanwhile, female readers needed to be encouraged to embrace radio as aesthetically pleasing, easy to use, and beneficial for the family. The comely female model resolves these pressures by naturalizing the radio's presence in the living room. As a potential mother, the model marks the lazy ex as family-friendly. The ease with which she employs her remote control also reassures female readers. But such ladylike elegance is not aimed exclusively at women. Ads like this appeared in family journals like the Saturday Evening Post that were as likely to have male as female readers. Both might appreciate how the model's remote control helps her maintain control over her radio and by extension the mass media. But she also provides visual pleasure for male readers. Inasmuch as men were in financial control of most U.S. households during the 1930s, we must read this model as eliciting male desire as well as, perhaps even more than, female identification. And I just want to stop here and flag the heterocentric logic that I'm applying to this advertisement and reading in this period. And I don't mean to impose that to the exclusion of queer readings. Quite to the contrary, I think that there are other ads, such as this subsequent ad for the Lazy X, that by leaving the narrative scene more open-ended, and I apologize, this is one of the lower resolution ads, but I think you can see the Lazy X is next to an empty armchair where a copy of the Saturday Evening Post has casually been caught casually been tossed, and a cigarette still smolders in the ashtray. By leaving a more open-ended narrative situation in ads like this, Philco provides an alternative to the strongly gendered dynamics that their previous ad campaign had attached to the Lazy X. So as we've seen, radio receiver remotes were marketed under the banner of differentiating radio from wireless making radio listening seem higher class, and offering various strategies for integrating radio into family life and home decor. However, the devices themselves frequently disrupted domestic routines. All of the remotes mentioned thus far needed to be connected to their receivers via 15 to 30 foot cables. And this is one of the few examples I was able to find of a restored 1930s radio receiver remote with its original cable. As you imagine, most of them have been frayed and replaced. Such cables made it possible for users to change stations at a distance but they also limited the family's mobility by either tethering or tripping them. While early remote controls did provide sedentary tuning stations, they effectively anchored their users to one location in the living room. For instance, once the 281's power and antenna cores had been secured under rugs or along baseboards, 
the unit itself could not be moved, nor was it intended to be moved, given that it was, after all, a full-size cast metal ash stand filled with radio tubes. <laughs> Moreover, the limited length of remote control cables regularly determined the placement of other furniture in the room. If the sofa was more than 15 feet from the radio or did not have a side table to support the remote control, then it would have to relocate. But on the other hand, if a user left her remote's cord out in the open, people and pets might stumble over it. So either way, the remote effectively took control of the room it was in, conquering it on behalf of the radio. For as I mentioned earlier, these devices were designed to relieve users of mobility, to help them stay put and listen to more radio. Before I conclude, I must mention the last great radio remote, Philco's Mystery Control, which might be understood as barely portable since it was nine inches square and only five inches thick. Called the most thrilling invention since radio itself, the Mystery Control was the first wireless remote control for radio receivers. Mystery control boxes continue to inspire much public curiosity in antiques auctions today. But as cool as they were back then, and I'd be happy to explain how they work in Q&A if you're interested, they did little to encourage remote control production during their manufacture period. Communications historian Patrick Parsons estimates that no more than 4% of electric radios produced during the 1930s had remote controls. Most Americans encountered remote control as a concept in a magazine or a store display. It was a curiosity or a fantasy during these years, rather than a common household device. Yet for those who had them, remote controls offered luxury and modernity, while also subtly asserting the media's control over radio culture. They provided material reminders for both users and manufacturers of the ways that listeners' homes and lives could be re-territorialized by broadcast radio, just as they had been by the flush toilet. Now, in my book, Remote Control, I continue this exploration of remote control fantasies and technologies through the first wired television remotes, the gradual introduction of wireless and then infrared wireless television remotes, and finally, the modern era of universal remote controls. But one of the most important lessons I learned from writing this book is that, through their cords and inconveniences, radio remotes have much to teach us about the inherent limits of control. Control can feel empowering, but control is not synonymous with power. Remote controls help users tune away from irritating broadcasts or commercials, but they cannot actually stop those commercials because remote controls do not give their users that power. Power is an ability to change the world around you. It is not defined by preordained parameters, as is control. Derived from the transitive verb to control, control requires a complementary object, even if only an implied one. Power can take a complement. You can have power over something, but it does not require one as control does. 
English speakers have apostatized and absolutized power differently, more thoroughly than control. So whereas a person exercises control over a specific arena, power exceeds any individual act of control that it might enable. A remote control user might be able to choose between three options, say the three possible volume levels on Zenith's early space command remotes. But the person who has the power is the one who designed the remote, the one who established those options. Of course, remote controls are not designed to emphasize the difference between power and control. My four remotes appear to bestow a lot of power on their user, but in practice, they allow, almost, they allow for almost no intervention in media operations. It seems like a user ought to be able to do just about anything with such devices, but in fact, a team of industrial designers predetermined all their possible functions. As I hope I've shown, this conflict between fantasy and design is intrinsic to the remote control device. The remote control arose from ideological conflicts about class, gender, power, and the mass media. It was offered as a solution for such anxieties, but that means that the user's lack of power remains intrinsic to the remote control device. We acknowledge this limit whenever we refer to these devices as remotes, focusing on the glories of remoteness, of policing rather than intervening, and of doing it all from our easy chairs, we overlook the failed promise of control. Thank you very much. <laughs>